Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 13, found on page 742. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. Oh, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Acts chapter 17 starting at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All over the world, the Christian truth is being proclaimed. Where the Christian truth is being proclaimed with courage and accuracy, the rule of King Jesus is advancing. At the end of the 20th century in the United Kingdom, sociologists were predicting the death of Christianity. On my shelves at home, I have any number of study books, The Death of Christian Britain and The Death of God and Secularization and Its Triumph and so forth. Two particular titles have always struck me, A.N. Wilson's God's Funeral A.N. Wilson has subsequently returned to an active faith in Jesus Christ, and Ludovic Kennedy, all in the mind. But then those who studied Christian statistics began to look outside Europe, and the statistics were undeniable as we came into the 21st century. And so the then editors of The Economist published a book, God is Back, which maybe caused God himself a slightly ironic smile. I don't think he felt he'd ever gone away. But they noted that the phenomenon of Christian growth continues apace in China, India, Latin America, and of course today you would have to add Africa. Indeed, the growth of the Christian church was described by them as one of the modern wonders of the world. All over the world, where the Christian truth is being proclaimed with courage and accuracy and conviction, the rule of Jesus is advancing. Indeed, we live in this country, in the United Kingdom, at the back end of a profound loss of courage in the truth of Jesus by leaders of the established church. And that's been going on since the mid to late 19th century. But where the Christian gospel is being proclaimed with courage and conviction, the church is growing. I, I was with my predecessor, the former rector of St. Helens, and I celebrated his 98th birthday last Sunday. And we were having a chat about this yesterday. He said, you know, in the 20, 1920s and 1930s, they were the low point of biblical Christianity in this country. But then came 1945, and a sudden expansion. And since then, there has been this growing where the gospel is being proclaimed clearly and faithfully. I remember in the 1980s coming to London, one could have chosen perhaps from five, six, seven churches where you would hear a clear 
Christian gospel sermon from the scriptures. Today, 40, 50, all over the world, where the Christian truth is being proclaimed with courage. This is precisely what Jesus said would happen. And on your handout there, I've had jotted down for you, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, Luke 24, that the Christ should suffer and that repentance and forgiveness should be or must be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what Jesus said would happen. It is precisely what has happened. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All over the world, this Christian gospel is advancing. And that is precisely the point of the piece of Acts that we are studying as we see. And you've got these maps once again in your hand. We see the Christian gospel powering from Turkey then into what we call modern-day Europe, Macedonia. And today we reach Thessalonica. But by the time you get to the end of this little section of Acts we're studying, chapter 19, verse 20, and I've jotted it down on the sheet there, so mightily grew the word of Jesus and triumphed. And that's exactly what we have seen. But what we're looking at in this section is what it looks like. And over the last couple of weeks, we considered what God did as the rule of Jesus advanced and triumphed in mainland Europe. We've seen him ordering Paul's travel plans sovereignly. We've seen his divine opening of the heart of Lydia. One by one, he opens people's hearts to pay attention. We've seen his supernatural intervention and earthquake enabling the freeing of Paul. We've seen confusion and false accusation. Always there is hostility with the advance of God's word. And we've seen one by one, one by one, one by one, the gospel advancing. But today, why the first five verses are of particular importance, we see the method Paul used and the message Paul preached. The method. The method he used was reason, explanation, and demonstration from the scriptures. Now, I want us to look very closely at verses 1 and 2. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. So this is what Paul did. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. And I want to take each one in turn. The word reason is the word that means, well, literally, to speak from one side to the other. It's the word from which we get our word dialogue. It means to converse, to discourse, to argue, to discuss. And the word is used repeatedly of Paul's method of word ministry. If you are taking notes, some of you are, it's a very helpful thing to do. Chapter 17, verse 2, verse 17. Chapter 18, verse 4, verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 8, 9. Chapter 20, verse 9. He reasoned. Indeed, 
So much so that when in chapter 18, verse 5, we are told by Luke that Paul was, quote, occupied with the word, we have to assume that he was reasoning and conversing and arguing and discussing around the scriptures with the people he was seeking to persuade to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. When he did this, this reasoning, it is summed up as him preaching. And the big preaching words, the words for announcing the gospel, literally gospeling, are used to describe Paul's dialoguing. It's what Acts call preaching the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians, when we read Paul's first letter, and he describes how his reasoning and discoursing and so forth was received, Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in words, but also with power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. In other words, our reasoning, our discoursing was accompanied by the Holy Spirit such that it was clearly God speaking as we reason back and forth, discussing and arguing and so forth. In other words, the work of dialogue and reason came with all the power of God's persuasion. Was it a sustained monologue, like an uninterrupted lecture, like kind of what's gone on so far in this last five minutes, eight minutes or so? Was it more back and forth Q&A of the sort that you might have in a pub or in a boardroom or in a study group? I suspect it was a combination. Certainly the sustained monologue was part of it. The normal practice of the day was sustained monologue. But it can't have been all of it because next week we're going to see that questions were asked and follow-up meetings were arranged. And so there was this back and forth. And it's all summed up as preaching the word. So he was reasoning, dialoguing. He was explaining, verse 3. Now, this is a fascinating little word. And Aaron reminded me of it when we were thinking about this passage as we were preparing our whole service series. The word is a fascinating one. It literally means opening. Um, I'm sorry to mention this if, this is, if you're squeamish or it causes you any trouble, but it's used of the birth of a child when the firstborn child opens the womb, an opening. And the reason it's fascinating, because it's the same word that was used back in chapter 16 and verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And now Paul is opening the scriptures with those whom he is reasoning. And it's exactly the same word that is used in Luke chapter 24 to describe the Lord Jesus, who opened the eyes as he opened the scriptures for his disciples to be able to understand that he had risen from the dead. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while we, he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, this is absolutely key. The Lord opens a person's heart to pay attention to his word. I hope he's opening your heart at the moment by his Holy Spirit to pay attention to his word. This is a divine work. 
But then there is a human dimension because the Lord opens a person's heart as the scriptures are open to them. And I am, I trust, opening the word to us now. We're looking at how God advances the rule of Jesus across the world. We're in Acts 17, by the way, in case you've sort of slightly wondered where we are. But even as I'm speaking and opening the words, I trust God is at work opening the heart. So it's not a purely human enterprise. It's a divine exercise. I'm at work. God's at work. That's what makes our Sunday evening so remarkable or Tuesday evening so remarkable as we reason from the scriptures and as you come to study the scriptures together on a Tuesday evening and on a Sunday afternoon, the Lord is at work opening even as the scriptures are being opened. Uh, John Stott has a very, very helpful comment on this in his commentary on Acts We note that although the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it. The Lord's work was not itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching. It is always the same. But then the third little word here in verse 2, he, verse 3, he was proving or demonstrating. So he was reasoning, he was opening, explaining, and he was proving. And again, the word choice is absolutely brilliant. It means literally to put something before somebody. Now, Wednesday evening was a great evening for me. Because we had all the students around in our house, they were cooking a fantastic curry, and I watched it being cooked. At the same time, it was Wednesday, 6 o'clock, open evening here for the 6 o'clock congregation. And there was a great curry being cooked here as well. So I popped in here, had a curry, went home, and had another one. And it was absolutely marvelous as these meals were put before me. It's this kind of language of just putting the scriptures before so that they can be fed on. Do you know the verse in Psalm 119? The unfolding of your words brings light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so what the Apostle Paul was doing, reasoning, opening the scriptures, putting the scriptures before. Here is Paul's method. It's so simple, isn't it? That's what he was doing. Let's pause here for just a moment. How does the rule of King Jesus Advance. Well, did you notice, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue? This is descriptive of the way Paul behaved. Now, somebody said to me after the talk last week, when we heard about the changed plans of Paul and the earthquake of Paul and God directing Paul, um, was that normal? Well, clearly God brought these things about. He sovereignly directed Paul and he supernaturally in intervened. He divinely opened the heart of Lydia. But if you like the normal activity of the apostle Paul, what he did, wherever he went, week by week, day by day, was to reason from the scriptures, to open the scriptures, to lay the scriptures before. This is how the Christian gospel advances. 
And if there's going to be an advance of the gospel in your office, in your family, amongst our children, if there's going to be an advance of the gospel, a further advance of the gospel here in the city, this is how it will take place. Now, God may do any number of things supernaturally and so forth, but the normal activity, reasoning, opening, putting before. Notice the place of the mind in New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity never bypasses the mind. We have a problem because when we read the word heart, we think we're reading about the emotion. But in the New Testament, the emotion was felt in the gut. I'm gutted. But the heart spoke of the mind, the will, and all of me, my reason. And so notice the place of the mind. Yeah, of course the emotion is involved. How can it not be? But Paul goes for the reason, for the whole of me, for my thinking, which makes a huge amount of sense. Because if I only follow Jesus because of my feeling, then the ground on which I stand is incredibly shaky. And so the place of the mind, the normal practice of Paul, as was his custom, and the ministry that we seek to engage in. This is the time of year when all sorts of people are drifting around London, looking for churches to be involved in, wondering about the church that they've landed in. This, I hope, makes real sense of the kind of ministry that we're engaged in here. And I hope you're able to say, you know, their normal custom is to reason from the Scriptures. Uh, to, to open the scriptures, to lay the scriptures before. And wherever that happens, we're le- learning here, the word of God prevails, advances mightily. This is his normal method. But if the apostle Paul was occupied with the word, we need to ask ourselves, what was that word with which he was occupied? And Luke, the author of Acts, goes on now in verses uh, 3 to 5 to tell us what that word was. So we move from the method to the message, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. I find that really helpful. Some of them were persuaded. You know, the Apostle Paul, some of them were persuaded. We're not told how many, a handful maybe, not a few leading women, we're told that. But some of them were persuaded. It it, it wasn't a kind of mass response, if you sort of mean. And that, I think, is really helpful. Some of them were persuaded. It's wonderful. But what was this message? Well, we can see from the end of verse 3, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's talking about the person Jesus. He's talking about the historical Jesus. The word Christ simply means anointed one. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. It ties us into the Old Testament The Messiah, the Christ, was the one who God has appointed and anointed to rule all the nations, all people, everywhere, through all time. This Jesus, 
who I proclaim to you, he is God's universal ruler and king. That's the essence of Paul's message. That's what we're about here on a Sunday afternoon. My own personal readings, I try and read a psalm every single morning. It's a great habit to get into, to read a little bit of the Bible each morning. I try and read a psalm every morning. This week, Psalm 72. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May the kings render him tribute. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. From shore to shore, from mountain top to the depth of the lowest uh, cave you can find in the world, may he rule and may kings and nations, there's the Christ. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you ask of you, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Be warned, O rulers, be wise, serve the Lord. With this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So the whole teaching of the first part, part of the Bible is that there is one God, that he has one king, and that all nations and all peoples should surrender to his one rule. And Paul came into every situation in which he found himself, and he declared Jesus to be the universal sole ruler of every man, woman, and child. In fact, when Paul sums up his work in Thessalonica, He says, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who will save us from the wrath to come. The idols of humanity are dead. Jesus is alive. Idols of humanity are many. Jesus is one. The idols of humanity are vain and empty. Jesus is real. The idols of humanity are false. Jesus is true. Wherever he went, this is the message he proclaimed. My own personal testimony, I arrived up in uh, university in 1980. I know that seems a heck of a long time ago, but I arrived up at university as a young believer. I knew I wanted to follow Jesus. I'd never really grasped that he is Lord Christ. May well be there are some of us here this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, we know we want to follow Jesus. We call ourselves Christian. We never quite grasp that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Christ. This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, he is Lord. Surrender is required. You know the story, don't you, of the... Uh, uh, Admiral Lord Nelson taking the surrender of a French captain. Do you know the story? It's a great thing to take the surrender of a French captain. Sorry if you're here as a French person, but it is a marvelous image, isn't it? And the French captain of the ship reached out a hand to shake hands with Admiral Lord Nelson. Nelson stood there. Your sword first, sir. Surrender. 
Uh, it's as if Jesus, Lord, your sword first, surrender. But now the route Paul goes to persuade that Jesus is God's king is such an interesting one. Just look at it here. It's not the route I would necessarily take. Explaining and proving that literally the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. Now that's an interesting one, isn't it? That the Christ must suffer and rise. Do you know, I think you can take this two ways. I've thought about it quite a bit this week. You could take it this way. On the one hand, the whole of the Bible story speaks of God entering into the world and of God coming into the world in order to suffer and die on the cross. And so I suspect what Paul did was to argue and prove from the scriptures right the way from back from the beginning of Genesis, right the way through to the end of the book of Malachi, and demonstrate that God's king was always going to suffer, die, and rise. And no doubt he went to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a seed from Eve would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent bruised his heel. Or Genesis 22, that God would provide a sacrifice. Or Exodus 12, that God ransomed his people through the payment of a price. Or Leviticus 8, 16, that there had to be an atonement price paid. Or 1 and 2 Samuel, where the king was a humble, lowly servant king. Or, or, or the Psalms 22, 69, where the king suffers for the sake of righteousness, in order to win his people. Or the prophets, the great prophet Isaiah. But all the way through, wherever you, if you like, cut the scriptures, you find that the Christ was going to suffer and die. This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So that's one way of taking it. And I have to say, I find it very persuasive that Jesus did come, that he did suffer, that he did die, that he did rise. This whole matrix of expectation into which Jesus fits absolutely perfectly. This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. But I want you to turn, if you would, back to page 742, because there's another sense in which you could take this idea that this Christ must suffer. And you look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 53, 742. He was wounded, page 742, Isaiah 53, 742. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise. If he was going to have a people, something had to be done with our sin. Our sin had to be paid for. And therefore, not only do the whole of the scriptures tell us that the Christ would suffer and rise, but also the very fact that 
We ourselves carry our sin, which has to be punished and dealt with if God is going to have a people who belong to himself. The Christ, it was necessary for him to suffer on the cross, to carry our sins in his body on the tree as he went to the cross to carry God's judgment at our sin. And so Paul reasoned, explained, opened, and laid before them the scriptures, this Christ, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, in the rest of today's reading, we find the response. And there are a couple of responses. Some are persuaded. But then we get the same old, same old. I'm not going to go into it. There is this unreasonable opposition and then you get down to the Bereans. Have a look at verse 10 and verse 11 and 12. Now, these Jews in Berea were in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. They went into the Jewish synagogue in Berea, and these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Now, there's our response, if you like, to examine the scriptures daily, to be noble, to consider the scriptures, to be part of this whole movement where the opening and proving from the scriptures is the everyday activity of the Christian community. And there's this phrase, to be Berean, Am I a Berean? Am I noble? Will I examine the scriptures? Will I receive the word with all eagerness? Will I examine the scriptures to see if they're so? That is precisely how the gospel advances. And it is precisely what we have seen happening just here over the last 25 years or so. As the gospel has advanced into life after life after life then to be proclaimed elsewhere across the world. William, first question. Somebody has asked, you didn't talk about Jason, not that Jason, this Jason. Yes. Um, And the question particularly was, why did they attack Jason and not Paul? Yeah, yeah. Well, because they couldn't find him. Um, And uh, my... Well, I mean, that's what it says, isn't it? And um, uh, when they could not find Silas and Paul, verse 6, they dragged Jason... So, you know, if you're looking for somebody to persecute and can't find them, find Jason. No, no, no. The, <laughs> the, um, and I, I want to spend time on Jason in two weeks' time. I've deliberately left Jason to one side because I think he is a key figure, as are many others. A chap called Crispus, uh, Sosthenes, I know, nothing to do with walkers, uh, Sosthenes, um, and all of these guys who are key individuals who are clearly backing this ministry. And I deliberately left it to one side because we've got quite enough here, I thought, in verses 1 through 4. And we'll be looking at Jason in more detail with Crispus and Sosthenes and um, the other chaps whose name just gone out of my head for a moment. And if, that... you stu- if you study R&R Romans, you'll meet Jason again. Ah, very good. There we go. In July. In July. That's right, right at the end of the year. Um, next question. Do, I mean, hey, if you pay any attention to tonight's talk at all, 
you know, that midweek is, that surely is what it means to be Berean, to be there on a Tuesday night, to come having looked at the, have, is there a question on that? Not directly. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if we'd had another few minutes, so people are very tight with the timing and their watches uh, at the four o'clock. Tell me about and, it. And, and so, <laughs> so but, but actually to be Berean is to be examining the scriptures daily. And that Tuesday evening, I mean, being part of that, it seems to me absolutely key. If the gospel is going to advance, we need to be part of a community like that and every bit engaged in it ourselves so that we ourselves can become openers of the word, persuaders, layers before. Another question on clarification. So Paul talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. What about his life? Why doesn't he talk about Jesus' life? That's what I... I mean, you may have noticed me (laughs) sifting through three pages of the talk at that point because I had a little section on the life of Jesus. And I thought to myself, um, as I've been, you know, obviously before I, I stood up, but I was thinking, well, that's not actually what Paul does here. Now, I think that's a little unfair. Acts is written cumulatively. And in Acts 13, we have Paul's model sermon. And I think that's a model sermon for all of Paul's ministry. We'll come to this next week. When he gets to Acts 17, he does go to the Areopagus, but he's already explained the gospel in the marketplace. And I take it that in, sorry, this is for next week and you're speaking, aren't you? But I take it that in the marketplace, he did Acts 13. He did Acts 17 verses 2 and 3. He reasoned, explained, and proved. And in Acts 13, where we have the model sermon, he does talk about Jesus who lived and so forth. But when he sums it up in Acts 17, it's... Simply, the Christ had to suffer, die, and rise. We've had some questions just on the bigger structure of Acts. So we had previous series, previous autumns, if you remember. This time, you've helped us with 1920, and there were other ones as well. And you said they were in blocks where they end up with the word of the Lord, well, here, mightily increasing and prevailing. What's different? If the word of the Lord did that at the beginning of Acts, in the middle of Acts, and now we're getting it again. What's the... Yeah, and take hold of your map. Being a geographer, I love this kind of thing. Um, Tim Shepherd put this map together. You see the light blue map with the squiggles? You've got to be here in December for that. That's where he has the shipwreck. I mean, how Tim thinks he knows the route the shipwreck took, I've no idea. But anyway, there we go. I, I think I might have put a dotted line in, but there we go. So... But um, what, what is new is we are moving from Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and now into, into, uh, um, in, into modern-day Europe. And I think what is new is the mightily advanced and prevailed. And yes, we have seen the gospel prevailing before, but kind of this kind of radical expansion of the gospel. Um, and you mentioned, just tell us what you mentioned when we were talking about this earlier. Can you remember? Uh, is it, I mean, in each part of Acts, that we're in one thing to notice is different groups or people are being addressed. So beginning of Acts, could the message possibly get to Jerusalem, which had crucified Jesus? Mm. Then the next little block, well, could it get to individuals like 
an African eunuch or a centurion who worked for the emperor could actually start a church, which it did in Antioch. So that was the middle mm. section. And now here we can see all these travels and we're going to head to you know, Ephesus, a major center of idolatry and evil. Could the gospel really do it there? Yes. And actually you might have thought, well, those are all very different sort of places, but Paul is saying they're the same word in each place. Yes. Brings the... Sli- slightly different. I mean, you, you get um, in, uh, when you're in Cyprus, you get the magicians... But here it's much more pagan. I mean, they're obviously large sections of Turkey weren't kind of Jewish. Um, and you've got Acts 13 and so forth, uh, and 14 rather, um, with Lystra. But it's much more in-your-face paganism here, isn't it? Um, so, and, and it is, you know, exactly your point. We're in mainland Europe. We've crossed the sea now. Brilliant. Another... Well, a question, your headings say Paul did these things and he was speaking mainly here to Jews. Why do we need to know what Paul did? Thank you. Um, well, I think it is... When you go back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it's a two-volume work. Luke 1, 1 to 4, tells us that Luke is writing to give us confidence and certainty. At the end of Acts, you find Paul on trial. And I think this is confidence and certainty about the apostolic ministry that advances and grows the gospel and confidence and certainty about the ministry itself, that this is the gospel. So I always say that Acts and Luke define the gospel and defend the gospel for us. Um, and then show us that the gospel is to be declared. And, and so you get this definition of the gospel, you get this defense of the gospel, and you get this declaration running right the way across. And why is it important is Paul, I think, to show us that this is the authentic apostolic method and message for the whole of the Gentile world, so that we then find ourselves, I trust, lining up behind it and practicing it ourselves. Well, maybe for our last question related to that question, you mentioned how there's been gospel growth in London, more places where the word of God is proclaimed. It feels like less Christian or it's harder to be a Christian. So how does this fit together and how should we therefore respond to it? Yeah, I mean, has London ever been really Christian? The answer is no. I mean, I think we're easy to look back and say, oh, wow, it was so... I think there was a prevailing Christian cultural norm that was formal, nominal Christian behavior. But it, I don't think it was Christian. I don't think it was Christian. It was just a Christian a, a culture that had been formed by a, a radical advance of the gospel in the 18th century. Now, 19th century, under the German universities, liberal scholarship came in in the middle of the 19th century and decimated trust in the Bible. So we're now living at the back end of 150, 175 years of loss of confidence in the Bible, which is why I began by saying wherever the Christian gospel is proclaimed with confidence, courage, and conviction... And wherever the truth, then you will see it. And you've seen this in your schools. You know, some of you set up Christian unions in your schools. You see that, yeah, a small number, a small number are persuaded in the universities and so forth. 
So yeah, we're living at the back end of 175 years of loss of confidence. But where there is confidence, you will see the gospel advance. I haven't, there was a second part to the question I've just missed. Well, it feels out there that we're losing Christianity. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to be a Christian. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, keep doing what Paul is doing here. Keep seeking to let whatever kind of medium you do it through, a school Christian union or... Um, it was lovely to hear somebody who works from home, not many interactions with uh, colleagues and so forth because they're all abroad, going out with the street pastors on a Thursday night to speak the gospel. And it is extraordinary. You will find wherever this ministry is being conducted, the Lord, small numbers. And again, when you get to Athens, at the end of Athens, what does your passage say? The small number, they say, oh, some of them say, oh, well, he's a, he's a nutter. And some of them, but some of them are persuaded. And just one and two, one and two, one and two, and gradually the gospel advances. But I can't help but think of the lunchtime talks going around. All, so the word is being proclaimed yeah. all around this area. And let me tell you, I mean, I used to come up here in 1984-85 and used to come back from Germany in 85 when I was serving a, 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 abroad. Where am I going to go to church? Well, there were really only two or three options where you would actually hear the gospel proclaimed. Probably, I said to Dick, am I right? There really only were three and he said, well, there were one or two others. And he named a couple of others where you might have heard the gospel being preached in the 1980s on a Sunday evening, clearly from the scriptures. Um, but you look now, they're more church than you can shake a stick at, which is, you know, just keep, keep doing it, keep doing it. And, and don't trust what looks like going on, what, what's, uh, you know, going on around you. Just keep focused and you see the Lord advancing his work.